O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you perform to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Those are verses 24 to 30 of Psalm 104, which is a psalm appointed for today, Saturday, November the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. This is the last day of the, the church calendar year. Tomorrow is the beginning of the church calendar year, the beginning of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. And so that I'm going to use it to do some different things. I'm going to um, move away from these daily... Um, comments on the three lessons and, and a little bit of a psalm, um, and I'm going to do more topical kinds of things. So if you'd like me to do some topical things, if you have some things you'd like me to address, you'd like me to work on, I'd really love to hear from you. And so if you'll send me uh, an email, you can send it to J, the letter J, green with the E on the end, so J G R E E N E ninety nine the numbers, 99, at charter.net, and, and I'll be happy to take a look at those things and, and see what I can do. I'm going to start through Advent. I've got a plan. I'm going to look at um, the, 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 the what are called the 13 divine attributes of mercy, and, and so these are identified. They belong to uh, Exodus 34, 6 to 8, and, and there's, it's a huge concept in Judaism, and so I want to talk about those things, because what I want you to do is be able to pray better, to be honest with you, to be able to praise God and bless His name um, better than, than we typically do, and so I want to give you 13 things, essentially, that you can praise God for. Then I'm going to look at Mary a little bit, and then look at the Incarnation, and what does it mean that Jesus took on flesh and became man? That, that's what I'm going to do through the end of the year. I'm going to look at those topics, and then after that, we're going to start a study of Matthew, and we're going to go, you know, a little bit at a time every single day. It's going to take a while. There's just no question that it's going to take a while, and so we're going to take a look at that and and study the the Gospel of Matthew together. So anyway, so here we go, and and I'll still do the topical things, but I'll probably do them in a different format. But but yeah, so give me your topics, things you'd like me to talk about, and I'll be happy to, to work through those things. So anyway, today we're in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 14, verses 12 to 21, Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verses 41 to 48, and then Philippians, chapter 2, the first 11 verses of that chapter. So remember, in the Zechariah passage, what we're talking about is we're talking about the end times. We're talking about what is it gonna, what's going to happen in the end times. So in this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Remember, all the nations are going to come up against him. And we see that same thing in Revelation 21, or 20 actually. We see that when the, they come up at, at the plain of Megiddo, and so the, the battle is joined at Armageddon, but there's no battle. It just ends there because the Lord takes action. And so here is Zechariah saying this is the plague that's going to come against them. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. I mean, it's just like a total meltdown, total physical meltdown. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. Well, I would, yeah, <laughs> if, if that were happening around me or to me, 
a great panic would come on me, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. So they're going to fight against one another. And we've seen some of that. I mean, not physically necessarily, but certainly in other ways. We've seen that same thing happen over the last two years during this pandemic when, when people chose sides and and came against one another. They wanted some people to not be able to um, to participate in society in the same way. And so there's been this idea. Uh, it's exactly what would happen in the situation. There's no question that, that if you're standing there seeing this plague break out, then, then what would absolutely happen is those who didn't have it would go against the ones who did have it. That we, we know exactly what it would look like after living through the last two years. <clears throat> Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And remember, he, he talked a, a, a good bit about the, the sort of the town and country distinction or the city and country distinction. The, the people in the city think themselves superior to the people in the country and the people in the country take offense at that. And so they've got their own thing going on. And, and we see that in America today, too. It says, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. In other words, there'll be a lot of spoil of war. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So it's going to be a complete thing. If you're on the wrong side, this plague is going to fall on you. And, and so they destroy themselves. So if, <clears throat> if we want to know what the Battle of Armageddon is going to look like, well, here it is. This is exactly what it's going to look like, because as I said, the armies are lined up against one another, and then suddenly everything ends, and we get the new creation. Well, here's what it would look like. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Seems a very strange thing to keep the Feast of Booths, of all things, but what it does is it celebrates a time when or commemorates, maybe is a better way to say it at some level, because it commemorates the time when the Israelites were in the wilderness, when they were separated from the land and apart from God at some level, except for the fact that he was among them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So the Feast of Booths celebrates and commemorates that time. And so it makes sense that, that the nations who had come against Israel, who had made that choice, uh, this is when they're now being pulled together and become part of the Lord's people. And so they, they, they would essentially say, we too dwelt in the wilderness until we came to know you. And so it would commemorate the time when they were apart from the Lord. And so they could celebrate now the ability to come into the land in the same way that the Israelites do. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there'll be no rain on them. That's a promise. And if the family of Egypt doesn't go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not. This shall be the plague which, with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booth. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And, and so that would be that there would be no rain on your land because you're not remembering that time when you were, were becoming but not yet. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. 
So what he's talking about is a time when everything in Jerusalem is holy to the Lord. And it, it reminds you, or should at least, if you're familiar with the passage, of Deuteronomy 6, when, when everything in the land is blessed. And when they're coming to the land, they're to bless the land by constantly blessing the Lord and being in conversation about his word. And, and this is what it would look like. So when ultimately everything in the land of Israel, everything near to Jerusalem, will be holy to the Lord, and there will be no spoilation of it, there will be no desecration of anything at all. And so just the nearness to the temple, the nearness to the city is enough to sanctify everything. And then ultimately, no traitor in the house of the Lord, T-R-A-D-E-R, traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. And so now we get Jesus coming into Jerusalem, going to the temple. When he drew near and saw the city, so as Palm Sun, on Palm Sunday, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. They've chosen a different path. They've chosen not the path of peace, but the path of war. And they're going to war with God by rejecting his son. And he says, if you had known what it meant to make the things that make for peace, then this would have been so completely different. But now those things are hidden from your eyes because you've rejected him. Because these, these people, as they come into the city, they've said, tell your disciples to stop proclaiming you to be the king. And there, there, so there's two things there. They fear an earthly king, the Roman emperor, more than they fear God. And they have rejected Jesus as being king over them because he's not coming in the way they want him to come. If other days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation." And so that visitation that he's speaking about, it, 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 he, th- this whole scene is exactly the way that you would welcome a king, what happens on Palm Sunday, everything about it. But typically, a Roman emperor would have come in on a horse. Jesus chose a donkey, which, is a, uh, which represents peace, as opposed to the horse, which represents war. So there's a powerful image when the emperor comes in, but they greet him in the same way. They acclaim him, and they essentially roll out the red carpet. And remember, that's what they did for Jesus. They rolled out the red carpet by strewing their cloaks on the ground and proclaiming that the king is coming to take his rightful place. And so when Jesus says, you didn't know the time of your visitation, that's exactly what he's saying. He said, I'm a king who is coming into town, and you didn't recognize me as king. And because you didn't recognize me as king, you will ultimately reject my claim to that kingship. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so that's the end of the Zechariah passage. There will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. These people here, the the people he's driving out, those who sold, those are the traitors, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, that Zechariah speaks of. And so Jesus is giving a sign, and, and they still have an opportunity to take that sign, that he's cleansing the house of God in preparation for the coming of the king and for God to take his place, but they won't allow that. So he's cleansing it in judgment. 
and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but he didn't, they didn't find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So they couldn't step in and do anything because the people would have prevented it. There was no uproar against him, so they had to manufacture one. They were going to have to bring false charges against him. And they were going to have to get someone ultimately to betray him at a time when, they were, when he and the disciples were more or less alone rather than in the crowds at the temple because they wouldn't have stood for that. In the Philippians passage, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he says if, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then come together as one and and be in unity with one another. And he could almost be quoting Psalm 133 there when he talks about, the when the psalm talks about the blessedness of the unity of the people. And that's exactly what Paul is encouraging them to do. Be of one mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Come together, be unified, love one another. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, these are the things that Jesus taught. These are the things that Jesus taught at the Last Supper with his um, disciples when he stripped to the waist and washed their feet and told them to do likewise. In humility, count yourselves, others, more significant than yourselves. Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last. Don't seek those high places. Don't think of yourself too highly. Be willing to become the servant of all. That's the path, he says, to greatness in the kingdom of God. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. doesn't come naturally to us most of the time. We can consume ourselves and our lives with looking after our interests. And we can then have no time for others' interests. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped means to be held onto tenaciously. No, Jesus loosed his grip, let that go. Even though he was in the form of God, he didn't count that equality with God as something to be held on to so tightly that he couldn't let go of it. And he says, no, he said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We who are in the image of God, he became like one of us. He became like a man. He was in the form of God, but he became like a man. And he did so by emptying himself. And that's a huge, huge piece of theology is what did he empty himself of? What did he retain? And what did he empty himself of? And that, that includes things like knowledge, but it also includes things like power. Did he submit himself to the Father so completely that, that he uh, emptied himself? what was retained in the incarnation versus what what did he lay down and lay aside? Well, Paul's saying, well, he laid aside equality with God in order to take on the likeness of men. He made himself subservient to the Father when there had only been equality prior to that. But he also made himself dependent, fully dependent on the Father, and he became a man which means he becomes susceptible to temptation. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And see, that's one of the things that, that liberals sometimes will take offense at, is the idea that, that, that he was um, obedient to death on the cross. And, and John Spong, who was a bishop in New Jersey in the Episcopal Church, who wrecked the Episcopal Diocese of uh, Newark through his um, theology, which rejected the cross— because he says that, that for God to send his, his son to die on a cross for me, I reject because that's child abuse. Well, Jesus offered a willing sacrifice. This is the, the, what the picture Paul's painting here, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Then, then you should see in your mind the, the picture of Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain where Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac and knowing that Isaac's not a little boy in that picture, that he's a man. And so when he asks, where, uh, the wood's here, the fire's here, all that stuff's here, but where is the sacrifice? He ultimately allows his father to bind him and put him on the altar. It's not just Abraham who's laying something down there. It's also Isaac. He's being obedient. He's being obedient and believing that his father, who is about to sacrifice him, is doing what God wants and that this is God's will. And so Isaac is making a great sacrifice or willing to make a great sacrifice of himself in the same way. But, but there's a cooperative idea that this is best. Therefore, I choose to do this because could Jesus have chosen otherwise? And I think the answer is yes. And that's the reason that the temptation of Jesus matters is because if he can't be tempted, then there's no point in that. And that he is at some level still different from us. He only appeared to be, which is um, what? The, the docetists said that he only appeared to be a man. He really wasn't. He just put on a suit kind of and looked like a man. And so here, that, 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 that rejection of the cross as God's atoning sacrifice is so misguided as to say that it's not efficacious. If you say that I reject that because that's child abuse for God to, to insist that his son die on a cross, then, then, the, then you, don't, you miss the cooperation you miss the cooperation of Jesus in that, in that passage, and you miss the parallel between Abraham and God and Isaac and Jesus. He says, therefore, God has, because he did these things, because he found him in human form, he humbled himself. Therefore, God has ex highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And we see that in Revelation 5 when we see that the one seated on the scroll, on the throne with a scroll in his hand of the seven scrolls for the judgment, and, and no one is found in heaven and on earth or under the earth who, who is worthy of taking that scroll, and then the lamb looking like it was slain appears before the throne and then goes to the throne and takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. So God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, and we see that right there. Because no other being is worthy, but that one is. The one who was obedient to death on the cross, the one, the lamb, looking like it was slain. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, which will come in the end. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. We who have the Holy Spirit, who have been given the Spirit to confess and to know these things, should give thanks today for the gift of faith and the gift of God's Holy Spirit to recognize and know the truth that we could bow the knee now in order that we can rejoice and celebrate when he comes again in judgment. Because we know that because of his sacrifice, we will pass through that judgment and we will celebrate throughout all eternity.